As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. If you were running for president, I would look at you and I would remind you how important your personal story is and how important what you are doing and how you got to this decision point. All of those pieces along the way, just how important they are and how much the country is looking for something to relate to and to grab onto. You know, for, for Biden, that might be pointing to the moon and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cure cancer. For, for Kamala Harris, it might mean Medicare for all. For Bernie Sanders, it might be, you know, getting rid of student loan debt. You know, so, so sort of pick your issue that you want, but the story and the reason behind it is critical. Hello. This is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I was excited to speak with Dan Senna, who just led the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee to take back the U.S. House of Representatives for Democrats. Dan is a longtime campaign professional who has spent about 20 years now in the political campaign world, including running a Tom Udall for Senate race in New Mexico and serving as political director at the Democratic Governors Association. So Dan knows a thing or two about politics and its ups and downs. Dan just completed two two-year cycles as executive director of the DCCC. So in a lot of ways, he is man of the hour. I wanted to talk to him about the 2018 cycle and how the DCCC thought about key issues in the primary and general election. We met in Washington, D.C. and had a very good conversation. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Dan. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure, sure. My name is is Dan Senna, uh, and I um, um, am the outgoing executive director of the DCCC and um, have been involved in, in electoral politics for, for the last 20 years and, and I'm delighted to have just led an incredible team of people who we were fortunate enough to have an incredible bench of, of candidates, really the largest battlefield that the Democratic House side has had in in well over a decade to to having taken back the house so incredibly excited and happy to be talking to you today thank you for thinking of me but um have been electing people for a very long time and this was this is a definite definite um high point of of career in life well it's got to be a little bit like coaching a team to a championship right when you when you take over the house of representatives especially at a time when we really needed some piece of power in this city so Talk just a little bit maybe about what election night and the 30 days following it while 
votes came in. What, what has that been like for you? Let's 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 come if you don't mind. Let's come yeah. back to election night because okay. it really all started the day I took the job, which was interesting because as, as you probably remember, and, and I'm sure many of the folks who are who who you you know sort of in the city and Democrats across the country, how how heartbroken all the Democrats were in 2016, and really the one thing we really didn't get as a party was the ability to win, and and it it left a very deep hole, I think, in not only institutions but in the faith of of candidates and the faith of campaigns. And so I inherited what is the central institution of democratic politics the day after that election. And and so to go from that to election night, the biggest thing that we did, and, and to your point about being a coach, was we, and, and under Chairman Lujan, we wanted to be bigger. We wanted more candidates. We wanted to challenge Republicans everywhere. And along the way, Lujan and I kept looking at each other and saying, well, this is going to work. This is going to work. This is going to work. And um, I remember actually about two years ago to this very day, we put out our first list of, of what, we, what we sort of deemed our targeted races. And on that list, there were roughly 60 races, roughly. And in 2016, um, and the team, I was there in 2016, the team was terrific. We had roughly 40 viable races in the country, and we invested in about 28 to 30 of them, approximately. And we put out this list of, of roughly 60 races. And I remember a friend of mine called me and said, I think you're great. I think you're a great guy. I know you come from like the governor and the Senate world, and it's been a while since you did a congressional race. I think you may have just given yourself enough rope to hang yourself. There's no way you're ever going to have that many viable races. So um, obviously then going into election day and, and sort of fast forwarding, we invested in over 80 races. We had 90 plus viable races across the country. And so election night, it, it was really interesting. Um, we were all a little nervous because obviously we, we were hoping everything would work. And and we, we firmly believed we had a path to about 20, 21 races where the polling and the data was very clear. These are going to be pickups. But then we had this other 30 that we were either tied, slightly up, slightly down. And we really didn't know we obviously had very good data and we believed the data showed that we had the ability to win those races. How many of them were going to break our way, we really didn't know until election night. So so it was just a very, very exciting night. What was the final total in pickups? 43. 43. 43. And, and one of the... Go ahead. Because I remember I talked to a friend who runs an analytics firm and he was like, we're in the high 20s. hundred uh, percent. I mean, yeah. we, we, had, we had initially thought that we had a clearer path from getting from 22 to 28, we thought there was a very high degree of chance of happening. And then getting from 28 plus, which obviously would have delivered the majority to us, again, we had we had 30 plus races where we were either tied or, or dead even in how those races were going to break. Again, the analytics showed that we had reason to be optimistic, but you also just don't know. You don't know what the composition of the electorate is going to look like, how those independents are ultimately going to break. So what is the job of the executive director of the DCCC? Oh, that's a great question. I, I think it is unique to each executive director and unique to each chairman. I, I really love the way you started this conversation by, by phrasing it as a coach. In this particular setting, in this particular year, it was very much a coach. It was getting people, getting candidates, getting allies to believe as a party we could be bigger, as a party we could do something that really hadn't been done since Watergate. And then along the way, breathing life into it and showing signs of the strategy actually working. And so, you know, I still remember the Georgia 6 special election, the, the John Ossoff race, was, was one of the first big tests of spending in a campaign, really playing a campaign out, and, and how things were going to work out. And prior to the results of that race, 
and we had the race very close the entire time, but you know, there are, you know, you sort of throw a rock and you hit a Republican in that race at the time, which we ultimately were actually successful in winning in the general election this time, um, which is a little bit of a different story. But we had made the decision before the results were called for that race to say we could win the majority. We would have enough seats. We would have enough of a strategy. We would have enough, a large enough battlefield to win the majority. And so you can imagine the sort of the, the holding of stress that comes with prior to winning or losing a special election, which the country really viewed as, as a, it was a very it's a very important election, to sort of call the ball and say, hey, regardless of what happens here, I think we have the chance to win in November of, of, of 18, um, which we chose to do. So so anyway, it, it's about being a coach. It's about about coaching just tremendously talented candidates and, and a team through, and, and ultimately your job is to win the, 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 the majority or defend it. What are the big decisions that come to you as an executive director? Uh, it, that's a great question. So there are a couple of really big decisions. First and foremost is just setting a culture within the building and setting a culture for the organization. What do you want, sort of your stamp of how it to, should feel and operate to work? And that, that takes a little while to get to. Um, the type of people you hire, all of those things. It's very separate to any uh, corporate culture or even a small business culture. Just what you want it to sort of feel like is 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 a big piece of it. And then putting the right staff in place, managing your member and your member politics and managing your chair, and then getting campaigns and getting candidates to a place where they are ready and prepared to be able to run for office is, is a big part of it. And how you do that every single cycle sort of depends. Right, we were in a place where we wanted to build a great big battlefield and challenge Republicans in places where, where they hadn't been challenged before. We wanted to force retirements, so we had a plan and, and an intentional strategy from day one to go after incumbents and really try and force them out. I started my career in the West, um, like you. I, I, I appreciate the Rocky Mountains. I started my career in California, and politically speaking, there's the right way, the wrong way, and the way they do it in California, right? And and I had seen in my early days in my career, people in California, um, national consultants come to California and get it wrong culturally. And I didn't want us to make that same mistake. You know, we saw tremendous growth in 2016 in the Orange County seats, and, and we knew it would present tremendous opportunity. And so one of the first decisions I made was, was you know, where do you put your, your team? You know, if you've got these pods that are responsible, we have this, this regional setup that, that we have these pods, which are basically mini campaigns that are responsible for working with you every single day. Well, I made the decision very early on to, to pin a lot of success in California and to move an entire team to California um, and decentralize the building. So it's decisions like that. It's, it's how do you set it up? What is the culture? What is the relationship with the chair like? What is the relationship with, with the incoming members like? And ultimately, what is the strategy to win nationally? What did you find the most challenging? What was difficult for you? Oh, uh, that's a, that is a great question. Um, how, how long is your show? Um, <laughs> um, we can make it long. <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Um, I, I think the very, very first challenge was getting people to a place, getting people, Democrats, members, candidates, activists, people involved on the Democratic side to believe that we had the ability to win. And, and, we, there, and we there was something going on out there where a lot of candidates were stepping up. Right. There was, there was, or how much, I mean, how much do you think that, how much was recruiting and how much was self recruited? Well, I think it was part of it was both, right? Because you needed to have an ethos or a reason to believe this could actually happen. Remember the first sort of Q1 of, of 2017 was a lot of hanging about Trump set against a backdrop of, of major mobilization across the, across the U S. And so, so it was incumbent upon us to figure out how to leverage both of those pieces. And how do you harness all of that energy in a way that focuses on the House, not just Trump, right? Because if it's focused just on the executive branch, 
why would you run for office? What becomes the narrative about what I can do as a member of Congress? And so, so we spent a, a fair amount of time very early on, whether it was putting people on the ground, which, which I'm happy to say two years ago, roughly today, we had people on the ground in 21 districts across the country. First time a committee had, had, had done, done that type of work that early. But in addition to that, it was getting people to a place where they understood that the fight was in the House. I'm sure you can probably remember lots of lots of the marches were, were heavily based on Trump, heavily based on the White House. Then the conversation was about the Senate. Can the Democrats take the Senate? Can we hold the Senate? Can we fight for the Senate? What is about the Senate? Meanwhile, the House folks were sitting there jumping up and down and going, the best thing you can do is take the House if you want to stand up to Trump. That took about a year for people to believe. So yes, part of it was recruitment. Part of it was was just a phenomenal group of people out there who really wanted to come to Washington and change the country. But underneath it, there had to be this larger reason to believe, larger reason to participate, larger reason to get involved in the fight for the House. The, navigating the primary season is always tricky when yeah. you're... you're you're here and you're representing the party. You're wanting the strongest nominee in every district as you see that, right. but also as the locals see it. And we had some interesting primaries. Sure. We, I think on balance came out with mostly the best results, mm -hmm. right? And, and the, the general revealed that, but you want to talk a little bit about some of the controversies that sure. you got into and sure. why you went the way you did? Sure, happy to. So I think it's important to, to a, a couple of different things. And, and I think it's important to remember that I think one of the big things that Democrats didn't get in 2016 was the ability to win. And there was an underlying hunger across all of the primaries, across the United States, I think across the, the primary electorate to be able to win, to create a check and balance within Washington, D.C. And, and it was interesting because the healthcare fight, um, which was a core issue for us across the country this cycle on multiple levels, was so important in the primaries. But we viewed the healthcare argument in the primaries in particular a, a net positive, the same way I think the presidential primary now will be a net positive to the party. Because you were talking about issues that people cared about and, and, and the path to get there, it really wasn't about the ideology about, about that, but it was about healthcare, but it was much, much more about raising the issue and providing a conversation around it, which ultimately I think is it helped us in the general election. But in particular with the primaries, so we have a list that we call our red to blue list. This is the list that we believe is the primary or sort of the, the, the best sort of races across the country, highest likelihood of winning, candidates with the highest likelihood of winning. And um, this cycle, 95% of our candidates um, who were on red to blue prior to the primaries made it through. So very, very high record. And, and to your point, one of the things that we saw in most of the primaries across the country was that the candidate who really was the best general election candidate was the candidate who, who made it through the primary. Um, and the vast majority of them have now made it through to Congress. And to what extent was that helped by your playing in the primary sure. throwing an elbow here or there or yeah, you know like yeah. there, because there is there is a perception on the left that uh the DCCC will lean towards an quote unquote establishment candidate sure. and sure. that believes that they will run better in sure. a lot of districts but what's what was your philosophy with so, respect to that so look we ultimately wanted candidates who best fit their districts now in some places I'll be honest with you like in the state of New Jersey we didn't move until the locals gave us the go-ahead to go. And and as I said earlier, we put organizers on the ground in the 21 most vulnerable districts in the country two years ago, almost to the day. And so we started with a place where what was happening outside of Washington was more important than what was happening inside of Washington. That was a major shift in terms of thinking to begin with. And so 
along the way, we worked hand in glove vast majority of the time with the locals on the ground. Uh, New Jersey is a perfect example of this. Every single one of the candidates in New Jersey who ended up on red to blue were supported by their local party and sort of endorsed by their local party. When we had to get involved with a primary, it was typically the, the primary tool was to put them on the red to blue list. There, were, there wasn't a ton of spending. Um, um, but just to sort of signal that To signal that this is a candidate that has a high likelihood of winning, yeah. yes. Um, and that and happened in one of, one of the Texas seats, It right? did. So yeah. Texas 7 in particular was yeah. one. Well, no, actually, Texas Seven. We never put anybody on red to blue. In Texas Seven, um, um, there was there were multiple candidates running in that primary, and um, it, it was a race. It was the first race in the of the of the primary race of the country. Who I'm happy to say, Lizzie Fletcher is now the the, the congresswoman from from the Houston area, and we had to make a strategic decision in that particular race to make the race so. It was the first primary of the year, and we made the strategic decision to. We had relatively good in intel that there were other f sort of spenders coming in to blow up multiple Democrats in the race and blow up other Democrats in the race. And so we made the decision to make the race too hot to touch. And um, while it wasn't necessarily a popular opinion with folks across the country. What does that mean? Well, so if you think about it, it's interesting. It was one of the very first races in the primary, but it was one of the few contested races in the country where guess how many outside spenders there were in the race? I'm going to guess zero. Why was that? Well, because we needed to make the race too hot to touch. We 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 had there were we had a fairly good idea that other folks were going to come in and and really go after Democrats that that had the opportunity to win in the general election. And so we unfortunately and or fortunately um, for, for 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 Fletcher, who is now the member of Congress, intervened in the primary and made the race relatively uh, a bit of a lightning rod. But it was designed to keep everybody else out of the race. We knew in a one on one race that we had a high likelihood of, of getting a very, very good candidate through in the in the runoff. And and ultimately, that is our job. Ultimately, our job is to win congressional races. And, and so you pick in that case, you picked a candidate. Uh, in in and, that and, case, we chose to do it. No, because we did not spend any money in favor of any candidate in any way, shape or form. We wanted to make sure that nobody else came to spend inside that race and provide a one on one runoff situation. There's a lot of sort of lingo of the trade there that I have a little bit of troubles uh, navigating, but it, it sounds like it worked, right? Well, yeah. look, I, Lizzie Fletcher is, is now a member of Congress and, and we defeated a very vulnerable Republican um, and she really fits the district. So so we're excited that she's in Congress. That's good. Well, might as well address one other controversial race, which sure. was the Ocasio-Cortez uh, defeat of yeah, the yeah. fourth ranking Democrat. What was your take on that and uh, how know, that happened? You know, it, it's interesting because in my job, you rarely get to just watch and and be a, and sort of spectate and just enjoy the the uh, enjoy is too strong of a word. Um, <laughs> you get to just watch sort of the electoral process play out. Yeah. That rarely happens because we're so focused on sort of the swing states and we're so focused on races that. that and that's a district the Democrats going to win. It is a very safe Democratic district, and so so you know we uh, at the DCCC we had um, and I believe the current administration will continue a member engagement department that is there to help every single incumbent. It was a major priority of, of Chairman Lujan, but but um, to help every incumbent along the way who wants help. So I'll be perfectly honest with you. We we watched that happen on election night. Um, you know, she's obviously uh, incredibly dynamic and brings a lot to the a lot to the table. But honestly, it was one of the few races in the country we just got to to to, to sit and watch. Yeah, it, it's it's sort of hard to not 
have mixed feelings about losing a long time respected incumbent, 100%, 100%. even if it's to somebody who's going to be a star. hundred percent. And that's why we have the department of member services to help those sort of longer term incumbents. And, and, and sometimes you help them with something as simple as, you know, I want to get some door hangers printed. And sometimes you help them put a campaign together. We wanted to make sure that every incumbent had that, that opportunity to them. So, but it, it was, uh, the primary season was, was, was incredibly, incredibly exciting what, to be part of. One thing I'm curious about is the relationship between the DCCC and consultants. Mm -hmm. And one, one reason that that comes to my mind is I had talked to a, a Latino consultant who said that you guys really had made a, a an effort to hire a diverse 100%. class of consultants. Talk about what your philosophy was there 100%. and what you changed. So, so um, my father was was raised in in Mexico City. I I am I am in New Mexico, what is called the Coyote. I'm half Hispanic and half Anglo, um, and so was the first Hispanic to to run the building. And obviously, coming um, uh, working for Chairman Lujan, it was incredibly important to us that that the diverse mix of not only the staff at the DCCC, but also the the consultant process really brought in as many new people as we could. And so one of the big changes that we made um, at the DCCC was, you know, there was this, um, there was this, uh, I sort of walked in and there was sort of this rumor or this always this thought that like we had this list and it's like, if you weren't on the list for the consultants, you would never get a job. And I walked in and I was like, okay, I want I, now, now that I'm the ED, like, let's pull all the curtains back. Show me the list. <laughs> and there was no list. I couldn't find a list. I could find a list of consultants who always get hired, but I couldn't find a list. And um, so I said, the very first thing we're going to do is, is there is no list. There is no preferred group of people. If somebody wants to pitch a race, it is the job of the political department to ensure that that person at least has access to the campaigns they can pitch. And so it didn't work perfectly all the time, but we, we it worked fairly well. And we opened up the process as much as we possibly could. Um, first and foremost, we also built out an office of diversity that was not only responsible for investing in new diverse talent within the building and on our campaigns, but also was a constant source of outreach to diverse vendors. And we spent more this cycle on diverse and minority owned firms than the committee has ever done. I also had the most diverse crop of, of team at the DCCC that, that we've ever had. 52% um, of the people in the building, as a matter of fact, who spent them, who spent money, who made strategic decisions were people of color. So really excited about that. And 50% were, were, were female. So I'm um, really excited about all of those things. But so we changed the way the pitch process just works generally. We hired somebody and brought in a team of people who did regular ongoing outreach, outreach to consultants of color to new folks, to folks outside of the political space. Um, and then we, we made a pretty big decision. Um, uh, we chose with our television buyer to open up the process for our television buyer on the independent expenditure side. And the, t the independent expenditure is typically the largest spend. It's those ads that most people hate seeing. The DCCC also operates uh, an, an independent expenditure okay. every cycle. And, and the buyer for that had been the same buyer for a number of years. They're very smart, very good people. But Chairman Lujan felt it was time to change. And so we, we put out a bid for the RFP process to, to this group that would do our television buying. And we ended up settling on three different firms, all female run. And one of the firms was, was half Hispanic and half African-American owned. And so we really decided to just keep cracking the door open and providing opportunities for new vendors to come in. Did that help drive pricing down? Did that, what, what benefits did, did that ultimately so, 
that'll appertain to your yeah. to the so D-trip. look, I mean, look, we won in places like you know we beat Carlos Cabello in in, in Miami. We picked up a new seat in in the Florida district. In, in, in the Miami area as well with Florida 27. We won multiple seats in California. We won seats in places that are incredibly diverse. And ultimately what, what we wanted is we wanted a staff and a team of consultants who looked like America. The same way we basically had a battlefield and a team of candidates that looked like America. And, and you know, those two things, it's a really simple premise, but they have to, it has to meet. If, if Hispanic voters are important, you need people who understand Hispanic families and Hispanic voters. If African-American voters are important, then you need people who understand African-American families and Asian families and AAPI and sort of the whole thing. So if you're going to make it a priority, you need to make sure that, that those voices are at the table guiding your strategy along the way. Congressional campaigns now are you know, millions of dollars, mm-hmm. the contested ones, and they do hire consultants across a wide range of different subject sure. areas, uh, ranging from media to field to fundraising and so on. How do you like get information out to campaigns about who's good and who's not good? Or is there any system for that? So the, so the way the building has been structured in the past or the way the DCCC has been functioning structured in the past is, is there are these, the, re, the, the country is broken up into regions. And so every campaign has a team of people it can talk to. That team of people in the building, you know, the mini versions of all of the things that are in the campaign. So there's a campaign manager, there's a digital strategist, which was new this cycle. There's a fundraising person, there's a research person, there's a data and analytics person, and there's a, there's a voter contact person. So all of the core elements that go into successful campaigns are mirrored with sort of a national partner to help guide, play therapist, you know, <laughs> just sort of walk a campaign through those things. And so one of the one of the, the 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 systems that we can help campaigns do is as they begin to narrow down who they're interested in, if they're asking for folks, you know, again, I, I made it a priority to provide as much of an open door policy to these campaigns um, because you oftentimes have consultants who come in and say, "I'm from Colorado, I'm from California, you know, I'm really passionate about beating Carlos Cabello, and I really want to talk to these campaigns." And I felt like it was important to keep those doors open as much as we could. And so as these processes begin to play out, the big determining factor is how do they match with the candidate? Do they understand the candidate? What is their workload like? Are they going to, you know, coming from the gubernatorial world, it was interesting to me. It took me a little while to get used to this. The level of service and the level of work that goes into a gubernatorial race from a consultant's perspective is very different than it is in a congressional race. And I really didn't want to end up in a place where we were just sort of getting cookie cutter service along the way. And so... Um, we just sort of set those values with with within our staff, and they help walk the campaigns through. Do they fit your sort of philosophy? Do you think they understand you? Can they capture you? And but is there uh, all, is through. there any kind of evaluation of, is, or is it possible to say these 100%. these are the top these are the top fundraising consultants? These are the these are the media consultants that are cookie cutter. Uh, yes, at, you know it is it is it is a little bit tricky. We did at the end of 2016, we did an awful lot. We did a deep dive into a variety of things and, and really wanted to learn from 2016. And one of the things that Chairman Lujan requested personally was, I want to see the win loss record of all of our pollsters and all of our media people. I want to see it. Um, but that can, that's fairly misleading because some well some pollsters might take the tough races, other ones take the easy totally, races. Totally, 100. Yeah. But what it did is it forced us to have a conversation about the consultant process and how we do it and how we get it. His intention wasn't to just say, just hire the ones that win. That wasn't his intention at all. The intention was to create a conversation within the building about how we're going to actually work with the consultants. So, you know, is there a, is there a report card that they get at the end of the year? No. Is there a very clear understanding of, of how they work, what personalities are like, what types of candidates they work best with? Absolutely. How about on the 
So obviously campaigns are responsible to themselves, to the candidate. They have to make their own hiring decisions. They have to decide what yeah. to say. But what extent does the, do they come to the DCCC for, say, messaging? And how much is that coming from yeah. national versus yeah. being generated locally? So I think, I, I, I think the cycle we just finished is a little unique. And I, I can say in this particular case, it was fairly robust, but I think it's unique. And I think it's unique for a few reasons. If you think about how we got to a position to be able to take back the House, there were a couple of big fights legislatively that happened here along the way. The first one was obviously the health care fight. And we played a very close role with, as the Chairman Lujan, with the Democratic caucus in helping guide messaging, helping guide the fight on the health care, helping guide how to talk about it. And then... After sort of the failed health care bill, they immediately, the Republicans immediately rolled into tax cuts. Wash and repeat. We provided significant polling, significant research on how to talk about the tax cut. How do voters view it as a tax scam? What are their sort of general feelings about it? And so as that happened, every step along the way, and this is also in part of, I think, part of sort of just the vacuum the Democratic Party felt after 2016, we had ongoing data that was honestly put out every six weeks, roughly, in the on year, in the off year, um, on message guidance. And so it, it, I think it helped set early narratives. It helped set early things to talk about. And I think it gave people a place to early on come as a sounding board for things. Now, the truth is, is what works in Boulder, Colorado, what works in Santa Monica, California, does not work in southern New Mexico and does not work in Miami. And so those larger frames need to be filtered and, and, and worked through on a local level. We simply provided macro guidance. But because the caucus was pushing back in a national fight, they played the caucus itself played a critical role, I think, in the early message development. I mean, there did seem to be a conventional wisdom or uh, accepted ideas about messaging that made sense to me a lot, which was like, we want to fight on our issues. We want to fight on health care. We don't want to fight on Trump. What was the source of that? Or is that kind of tons of sources? Or Where is that? Like, it did seem like we ran a smart election generally as Democrats. Why? <laughs> it's not what we always How did that do. Happen? <laughs> it's not what we. I mean, and we, uh, look, I mean I, we, we came. I mean, clearly, we came off a, cat, a calamity of, of a presidential election, yep. and maybe that's the answer: is that people were really thinking hard about. Yep. How do we win? But what is right. the answer? Right. To my earlier point, the one yeah. thing we didn't get in 2016 was the ability to win. I think that drove an, an, an awful lot of it. Um, and I think we should have, we got some wrenches that were unexpected thrown at us at the end. I mean, yeah. I don't think it was all just bad campaigning by any I, means. Uh, to totally, totally, yeah. totally. Right. And I, I don't mean that in any sort of a judgmental sense. I just, it, it's sort of an emptiness that, that we had to deal with the entire time. And the belief that we could actually win was, was also came from that. But it wasn't the same everywhere. Healthcare and the tax cuts led an awful lot of the fight. And a frustration with Washington and coming to change things, it wasn't the first time the electorate had seen it, but it was the first time the Democrats got to run on it. Obviously, Sanders used it masterfully in the primary in 16, and Trump is, it is a core piece to why people like Donald Trump which we can talk about in, in, down the road. But in some places, they did use Trump. Like here in the Washington, D.C. area, the, the Wexton ads were, were squarely going after Trump. Yeah, when you have a district that doesn't like Trump, it's different than when you have a district uh, that 100, does. 100%. Um, versus like it wasn't used in North Carolina. It wasn't used in upstate New York. It wasn't, it wasn't used everywhere. And so it really was a balance of, of where does it make sense to, to invoke 
Trump versus not. The one common piece that we had was there were two big pieces in the messaging cycle this cycle that that I think it, it's not unique and the first one is actually fairly common sense, but candidates matter and candidate stories matter. And we had a phenomenal crop of people for a whole host of reasons. An awful lot of it comes from the work that we did as a team. We also had some phenomenal people knock on the door and say, I want to run. And I heard stories. people all that whole, for two years talking about how important that was. Mm -hmm. Like, talk, and I hadn't always heard that before. Right, right. You know, it seems like that we came to a collective realization about that. Or I, 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 I don't well, know. I think it's a series of factors. I think yeah. I think we did have just phenomenal candidates. And I think you've got like the futures of the Democratic Party, I think, are part of the, the, the 40 plus people who just got 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 sworn in. Number two, if you think about the surge of grassroots money and you think about how many of these campaigns came to be from March to movement to getting into the race to very real reasons, the healthcare fight in particular presented an opportunity for many of these candidates after they had told their story to talk about pre-existing conditions and to talk about how the healthcare fight themselves impacts their lives. And so there, it was sort of this theme or this thread throughout an awful lot of the narratives that were so personal to begin with that the candidates just had an opportunity to shine through. You combine that with the fact that they had the financial resources to tell a story and to rebut an attack at the same time, congressional races typically don't get that. So long story short, you we had an opportunity not only from a narrative perspective, but from a strategic perspective financially to be able to constantly have the candidate there versus many years past if you're getting attacked on taxes, but you're up with you know a, a positive bio, a typical congressional race has to stop, put down that positive bio, pick up a defensive ad, defend the attack, and then keep going. And that doesn't always allow for sort of you know a fluid story being told. What was your attitude towards the groups that formed outside the party yeah. in the wake of 2016, or that had previously the swing lefts of the yeah. world that were? focused on congressional races. Yeah. How did you view them? Awesome. Awesome. And that was the very reason we put people on the ground a year out, uh, two years out. Remember, we put people on the ground two years ago, almost to the day, because the last thing I started as a canvasser, my very first job was as, as somebody who went door to door in Albuquerque, New Mexico, knocking on doors and, and ran field programs and voter contact programs for a very long time throughout communities of, of, of throughout many races throughout the United States. And the ability to organize the community was something that was really important to me. And like many people, the institutions themselves, like the DCCC, the DNC, and all of those things, oftentimes showing up and saying, hey, I'm here from Washington. I know what I'm doing. Let me help you is the wrong thing to say. And so um, part of the reason we put these organizers on the ground early on was to build a relationship with Swing Left. And we and, and, and inclusive and indivisible. And there were sort of all of these new groups so that they weren't cold relationships. So that when we had candidates in place, it was, you know, Dan, let me introduce you to Swing Left Local, um, you know, Orange County Swing Left. Um, it also helped navigate the primaries. Right, because we took an awful lot of P's and Q's in the primaries from those folks. And so it, it wasn't always perfect, but the intention was there to build bridges, to work together. We hosted trainings with Swing Left. They did some very, very smart things. So so generally we did our best to be as as um, non-national committee as we possibly could and open. What about the there were also some groups focused on we're gonna get the most progressive candidate in every 
mm-hmm. in every district, regardless of whether that makes sense, yeah. sometimes to the exclusion of sense. How do you navigate that? So look, I mean, in some of the primaries across the country, we didn't touch them. In some of the primaries, like in the, in the Kansas primary, Kansas 3, for example, we didn't touch Kansas 3. And because there were multiple candidates there, Sanders had, had endorsed somebody, and there were just a whole bunch of different people in the race. And we let the race play out. And so in some places, we chose to put somebody on red to blue and step on, you know, and unfortunately ruffle some folks' feathers. The playbook really ran the gambit of, of what was necessary. But Kansas 3 is a perfect example of... Regardless of who came after the primary, we knew Yoder was the most vulnerable incumbent in the country. The day after the primary, we went after him. And so it was less about what do we do with the primary and what, do we, what you know who is ideologically where. We actually ignored that fact altogether. We knew we had an incumbent that we could beat, and we immediately went after them and gave the Democrat, regardless of, and this decision was made before the primary was even done, so that we can pin him down and provide cover for whoever the Democratic nominee was. One of the things in the Republican playbook was, we'll run against Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. How did that play into decision-making you had to make if it did? Totally. Um, so, I mean, look, we knew very early on that it was an old playbook. And we have seen this playbook for a very, very long time. And we knew from early on that it just it, it didn't have the teeth behind it that that was was going to be successful electorally. And so it was a tactic they chose to keep doing. They chose to keep doing, even though off the record they were telling people we know this isn't working. But it was just it was a dated tactic that unfortunately just didn't work. I think. Why do you think it didn't work? Because, well, you know, it seems like it's a rational thing. Like we want we want to keep the majority. Yeah, Otherwise, you're totally. going to get the, so let's talk the liberal about, from San totally. Francisco. Let's talk about Jason Crow for yeah. a minute. OK, yeah. let's talk about Jason Crow, who is who is from your just around the corner from your your, yeah. your home state. In Colorado. Yeah, I'm from I'm from Boulder. I'm from Colorado <laughs> second, but, but Colorado, but that's too. Yeah. Let's talk about Colorado six for a yeah. minute. Um, and we saw this in the special election in Pennsylvania with 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 Connor Lamb as well. Jason Crow, I used to, I, I refer to him as my favorite army ranger. Okay, let's just start. That's how we refer to him as. And uh, a person who has dedicated his life to protecting this country then went on to go do a whole bunch of amazing things. Uh, somebody like that with that type of a bio or Alyssa Slotkin, right, who 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 brings a, an amazing record of, of working with the CIA and having been, you know, overseas and helping defend us. She's, she's Michigan 8. These people who have these incredibly incredible bios of defending our country and putting our country first, when you then immediately just try and slap them with, oh, they're, they're just like Nancy Pelosi or they're just these crazy liberals from San Francisco – it doesn't. It, it doesn't. It's their fit version them. of cookie cutter. It doesn't fit yeah. them, and and that's just why the candidate bios, their ability to tell their stories on sort of multiple fronts, was so important. It just it doesn't work when Jason Crow was standing there. His closing ad is is just this amazing ad where, as an army ranger, he basically gives the the credo or the pledge that he took as an army ranger. And it's all of these other voices in Colorado who who represent the district, who look like the district, saying it with him. That is a unique individual who stands on his own and voters sought very clearly in, in districts across the country. Trump really worked to nationalize the race, mm-hmm. it seemed like, at the end, around the caravan, mm-hmm. trying to bring Republicans home. And I think that worked some places. What, what, what's your view of that? Well, so I, look, he, he definitely understands how to how to motivate people across the world, across, across the country, really across the world, but but really in the United States, he understands. <laughs> he he how got this. He got his side out. Otherwise, I think we would have won a lot more than forty. One hundred. Well, I, you're, uh, you're, you're, <laughs> uh, maybe. Well, there, that, there I think that's inarguable. Yeah, right, there were so. a few that were that 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 we obviously would. I mean, you were talking about eighty. Yeah, <laughs> uh, these districts are very hard. Um, we should they not are. underpin how important and, well, and how we, historic we, what we and people talked about. 
the gerrymandering, meaning this was impossible to do. Right. It, it, I mean, it, that was correct. that's where we started. Correct. And, yeah. and and you got to remember the national vote was only like plus five, plus six Democrat. It wasn't. I think it was it, plus it, eight. It wasn't. wasn't. Well, but the the issue with that is is when you look at the total, we 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 said some polling that I will send over to you. Actually, in in our core battlefield, so in the forty races we won, I, I had to wait. I couldn't get all forty three in because we had to eventually decide to do it. Trump favorable rating. His job approval rating was 48. His unfavorable rating was 52. So we were negative basically four um, or plus four in, in, in terms of his favorability Which is rating. not that, not, not as bad as it should be. The battlefield is purple. It is truly purple. It sits right center middle of the spectrum. We knew all of the data that we had showed that the economy and his standing on the economy bounced around. And who gets credit for the economy um, bounced around. And which makes sense. There's so much chaos here and there's so much craziness going on. The idea that the Republicans would get credit for everything that was happening with the economy, I think, was a bridge a little too far. And I think they recognized that a little bit. They should have stayed with it, though. Well, I, but I think it and, kept his approval ratings from going down further. hundred uh, percent. Uh, yeah. That's why I'm saying they yeah. actually should have stuck with it. Yeah. Now, what, what, going in now, the one issue, and this is still true today, the one issue that, that all the data last November showed where Trump was still most sort of believable in his position of strength was immigration. And so we actually had campaigns who had ads sitting in the box ready to go that never used them because we had assumed that the close was going to be an immigration. So while he was doing it nationally, they didn't do it every, they didn't use it everywhere in, in, in every congressional race in the country. They didn't um, judge that that would actually work. Correct. Yeah. And, and so, so there was a little bit of a disconnect between sort of the, the national party and, and, and Trump, but, but, um, long story short, it, 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 he was able to motivate people. He was able to turn his base out. And listen, the one thing that we learned with Trump along the way, this is why the battlefield is so important to have been so big, is every time he does something, there is an opposite and, and relatively equal reaction within the battlefield somewhere else in the country. So while he may be rallying on, on immigration, and that might make a race in upstate New York a little bit tighter, it opened up races in Orange County, California to us. And so part of the key strategy was really, regardless of what he did, we had multiple paths to being able to get to the majority. This, this notion, I think, that the battlefield is purple is, I think it's correct. And I think it's correct in the presidential. Um, and <laughs> the purple country it really. is, well, it is, it is in the States that are, that right. are making the difference for control. It's also very hard. I think for a lot of progressives to understand how that can be like, what is the totally. appeal to the Republican party to, to Donald Trump? that I'm just not getting mm -hmm. and you, but you have to understand that to campaign right. uh, on the margin. What, it, how do you see that? So I, I think it's a couple of different things. I think it's important to understand that there is a great deal of mistrust and frustration with government and Washington DC generally. There always has been, but that level of frustration is at an all time high amongst people across the United States. And, you know, Sanders was able to tap into it in the primary in terms of sort of this populist argument, right? And then along comes Trump and he clears the primary. He cleared his primary field. He mowed every single one of his opponents down. And all we set behind him was this argument that, that what is happening here is, is screwing you. And I can, I can better or worse burn it to the ground and I can't be bought. That is incredibly appealing to people. And we did focus group after focus group across the country. And there is a large segment of people who 
don't like his tweeting, don't like what he does, doesn't like how he how he acts, but likes how he governs. And it's interesting, if you look at his sort of favorable rating, do you like him as a person versus his job approval rating, he has the opposite problem Barack Obama had. Barack Obama was liked personally, but his job approval always sat four or five points underneath him. So people liked him, but they didn't always like what he was doing in office. Donald Trump's numbers are the exact opposite. His favorable rating sits in the mid sometimes the high 30s, sometimes the low 40s. But his job, do you like what he is doing, is always four or five points higher. Do, do you read that as the country is fairly conservative? Uh, look, I, I, I think there are major, po- yes. I mean, I, I think the country is conservative in, in very specific ways, right? I mean, there are things that unify the United States. We all want to pay, you know, if, if we have a mortgage, we want to have pay for our mortgage. We want to take care of our parents. We want to take care of our kids. But but the, there is a there is a conservative bend to the country, a purple bend to the country that that doesn't exist, you know, in, in every major city in the United States, but exists in smaller rural places and dirt roads and and those types of things. And he, there is an appeal that he has to people that that um, we should not underestimate. With that in mind, what do you think is going to happen in 2020 or what, you know, like what advice sure. say you're you're asked by. One of fifty candidates <laughs> running for the president? Democratic nomination. <laughs> sure, uh, you know, what they should be doing in this sure. time and place. What I think there are three big things that we need to do. First and foremost, you have to understand how important your. If you were if you were running for president, I would look at you and I would remind you how important your personal story is and how important what you are doing and how you got to this decision point. All of those pieces along the way, just how important they are and how much the country is looking for something to relate to and to grab onto. You know, for, for Biden, that might be pointing to the moon and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cure cancer. For, for Kamala Harris, it might mean Medicare for all. For Bernie Sanders, it might be, you know, getting rid of student loan debt. You know, so, so sort of pick your issue that you want. But the story and the reason behind it is critical. Why you got to where you are. You know, um, Warren's story about where she grew up and her time in Texas and, and you know, sort of this interesting arc that she really has yet to tell is is going to be very, very powerful, as all of these candidate bios are. That's number one. Number two, you have to understand that roughly 45 to 47 percent of the country views Donald Trump as the president of the United States. He is the president of the United States. In the building, in, in during my tenure at the DCCC, we referred to him as President Trump in the Trump administration, not Donald Trump. He is the president of the United States. When you deviate from treating him or looking at him as the president and you begin to think of him as a reality star, you begin to think of him as the access Hollywood guy, as you begin to think about him of all these character defects, you begin to play into a world that actually benefits him. Because people view him as the president, when you do not treat him as the president and take him on on policy and take him on for his actions in office, but go after character, you fall flat. Every single Republican opponent who ran against him falls flat. When you take him on for being a politician, his motives for why he does things, you can win and you can beat him. So that's number two. Number three, it is incredibly important to ensure that you have diverse staff, that you have diverse people around you, that you have people who represent what your country looks like. Um, They will help amplify your story. They will make you better. And it is a key piece to victory. Given that emphasis on personal story and 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 some of the, this notion about how best to take him on. Who do you think is best positioned to tell that tale and 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 really be the right person for us? Look, I, I think all of the Democrats at this point, sort of the top twenty, top ten, I, I think have the ability to beat him. I, I think the most important thing that we have to figure out, and I think the person who will beat him most quickly or will be the nominee, 
is the is the candidate who figures out how to take on his motives. Why does he do what he does in a way that is believable, um, in a way that is authentic, um, will ultimately become the next president of the United States. I think he can be beat. I, I think it is it is it is not a slam dunk. Before we sort of turned the the recording on, we were we were joking about how this could be. Um, there are folks out there who sort of view this as a sort of a slam dunk. I think it is 50-50, right? I, I think it might. I would give him a, a more more likelihood than that Correct. re-election, which is going to astonish as most people I tell that to. But that's why you have to get to the motives behind what he does. What do you it think is the, the motive is? What do you think his motives are? Well I, well, I think it's probably personal gain. I think it is, It is. you know, it's not necessarily the Mueller investigation that's important. It's the fact that he tried to cover it up, right? It is It is these things that once you become a politician, you choose to do. The more you make him a politician, the easier he will be able to defeat because he's not here changing things. He's not here burning things down. He's not here advocating for you. He's here doing what every single a politician has done that you dislike um you being you know frustrated voter you know fill in the state and so i i think as we begin to dissect why he does what he does and and develop a strategy from that i think we have a high a higher likelihood of being able to beat him but but we have our work cut out for him we should not underestimate him serving uh as executive director of the d trip is a it's a pretty high place to get in American politics. What do you do after that? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, I just got back from vacation with my wife, um, and I took my kids to Disneyland, so Disney World. So I sort of checked those boxes. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it's something that I am very much thinking through. Um, I, I am 100% not sure. You know, my I am married to just the best woman in the world um, with two amazing kids, and trying to figure out how to. I have been. As you can imagine, a job like this is very stressful. And so for the last couple of years, ensuring that we were successful was sort of a, not the priority, but it took priority at time over other things. And being able to rebalance that now with my personal life is something that I am working through and trying to figure out how to balance. So I don't know. I've given myself really till early February to 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 really honestly process this and, and sort of think it through. I, I feel incredibly honored to have been able to serve in this job. It was not a job I ever aspired to have, to be perfectly honest. I didn't start out as a canvasser or, you know, um, <laughs> uh, working my way up through through management and those types of things saying, gosh, I can't wait to get to the DCCC and run the place someday. Actually, not at all. It was it was quite the opposite. Sometimes I, I was cleaning up the messes that were made by by the national committees. But um, and it, it, they're very hard jobs. That's not a knock. They're very hard jobs. So thank you for asking. I I, I will fill you in as I as I progress. But I am um, I'm, I'm still very much sort of thinking it through. Uh, what, what brought you into politics? Oh, in sure. the first place, what, oh, what yeah. motivated great that? Great question. Um, so it's it's a great question. So I'm from New Mexico. I am I am from a state. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, we were always 49th or second in everything. You don't want to be first or you don't want to be 50th in. And um, an incredibly poor state. Well, I think, you, I think you were always well ahead of Mississippi. Uh, well, so again, I didn't, I, I didn't want to throw Mississippi under the bus. <laughs> but but it, look, it's a really, really poor state. And so the state is, is um, heavily dependent on federal and state funding. Lots of national labs, lots of bases to, to, to sort of keep it alive. Um, I had a great uncle who was a United States senator, and I he had he was he passed away even before I was born. But in who, the family, Den, Dennis Chavez was a United States senator and representative. And so in the family, there was this in, in combination with the fact that New Mexico is so heavily dependent on federal funding, but there was also this sort of honorable profession of of service. And along the way, I got to work with guys like like Tom Udall, who was just 
an amazing honorable man and sort of had some really great mentors along the way of, of this is an honorable profession and uh, which, which not a lot of people sort of <laughs> say about it anymore. Um, and I had the Mark Udall coming out right, of my, you had, right, exactly. You also had the Udalls. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so, uh, long story short, I, I, I just believe that, that public service is still a way to fix and change things in the United States. And the caveat to that is I'm also very competitive and in the electoral side, there was always a winner and there was always a loser. Yeah, it's like sports. It, it is like sports. And you spend, you know, a couple of years or a couple of months competing or preparing to compete. And then it all ends on one day. Well, unless you're in California a, or you Utah. You pretty much get a scorecard. You get a scorecard, <laughs> right? You live or die by that scorecard. <laughs> and so that creates this fun sort of unique dynamic that is unlike a lot of other professions. What to do with that as I grow up, I don't know. I'm working through. But um, that that is sort of my, my genesis. Do you think I'm you like, stay in politics? 100%. So does 100%. that mean like, I mean, what I've seen for routes for people like you is they go over to the House Majority Pack. They sure. go over to, uh, they become consultants. Yeah. They... They, I don't know. It's it's hard to figure. They you run know, a national campaign. Yeah, you know. Look, I will be honest with you. My my, um, uh, just speaking personally, my my father, after many many years of being sick, passed away two months before election day, and uh, he ran a business for a very long time. And and um, I always really admired my father's running of a business. And um, as a, in his passing, I have spent more and more time thinking about the business of politics and, and how do you help elect people, um, but create a business that sort of embodies a lot of these same values that, that I think I just tried to instill at the DCCC with, with, with some success. And so I feel my heart sort of pulling me in that direction. I, I don't like the idea of like, well, I'm just going to be a consultant. That's not my desire. My desire is, is there a, a way to a build a business that, that embodies some of these things that we were just able to do successfully? That's and you know that's that was my career in a lot of ways. Right, right. I tried to find a business on the intersection of politics and technology. Yeah. I, I, one thing I didn't ask you, and I meant to, if I can just steal some time here, yeah. is how did tech play into what you did? Totally. Because because it's really a huge part of modern campaigning, and and I know that there were a lot of experiments 100%. at the DCCC. What 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 what's your learnings so, there? Look, I, I think we wrote a, a new innovative purple playbook. I, I really do. And we, you're right, we haven't gotten into this. I, I think we have a, a series of new innovative tools that are incredibly helpful to campaigns. First and foremost, um, the intersection of what you say digitally, how am I thinking about building name ID every single day on Twitter, Facebook, and you know, amongst my allies uh, is a core piece to this now. And so we brought in all of, not all, we brought in a vast majority of our digital buying. I brought in an entire creative team. You know, We basically had a mini ad agency in the building that had the ability to place ads, run ads, hold Republicans accountable every single day in real time. Uh, first committee to do it, it is definitely the direction to go. Uh, so I'm incredibly excited about that. One of the other big, big pieces, and, and Simon, um, Simon Rosenberg um, from NDN was, was part of this with us and did a phenomenal job, is, is we built out some really cool bot detection work and, and systems that allow us to look at Twitter and look at what is not only being said, what is the sentiment. We worked with some really great sort of sentiment analysis folks, but also when you have sort of foreign or you have malicious actors, bots, fake bots, because being a bot is, it, it, there's nothing wrong with bots. We all get pinged by things regularly. It is when they are disseminating information that is untruthful and, and there's this And there was an awful lot of that. And there was a ton of it. So yeah. we built out this really great system internally uh, that is able to detect 
detect bots. We worked with Twitter to be able to shut them down. And so we were able to help close some of those loops um, that that the right does a very, very good job of, 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 of being able to not only take, but then, you know, <laughs> put it on Fox. But, but, and there's so. also, there's not just bots, but there's also like Twitter circles where, where there's humans that are operating Correct. almost bot-like. Correct. Correct. And that is, that is what is one of the biggest challenges you have is especially once a human picks it and begins to move it, it becomes an organic source. But you still want to have tools that help sort of snip it in the butt along the way. You know, you fight on the battlefield as it exists, but there's a lot of uh, rules about the way campaigning takes place in this country that are not ideal. The the way redistricting works, the sure. campaign finance land, the, the way independent groups are able to, to intervene in the process. If you were advising a reform commission or something to to change the way the regulation of of congressional campaigns what what changes and you thought those changes could go through what changes would you make that is a tremendous question well i will tell you i think hr1 which an awful lot of our our new members will will obviously support is, is a great first step and so i think anything that has to do with opening up ballot access because we've been moving backwards 100 on that in a terrible way in a yeah. terrible way and it is it is the it is sort of the way the institutions locally have been redefined or your way your local election commission have been put together that really create challenges for congressional races senate races and for for folks up and down the ballot so the very first piece is sort of protecting the vote ensuring that those votes are counted correctly um and, and then look i i do think transparency around pac money i do think transparency around how you fund your campaigns is important. I do think transparency around the C3, C4 world, um, which which right now, uh, you know, is is basically a black box, you know, the, who they get money from, how they get money, what they choose to do with it. You can see how they spend it. You can't see where it comes from. And, and, and so I think there are just some basic things around transparency that need to happen to open up the process and give us a clearer idea of exactly who's funding elections. I I would genuinely like to talk to you for several hours, but <laughs> well, I, but, I, come I, back I <laughs> uh, but um, I wonder if there's a question that I should have asked that I failed to. Oh, I think that's a great question. Um, I, I, I guess the only question that, that, and, and this is just very much my own perspective um, of having just spent two years with, you know, 120 people in a foxhole is how does it feel to sort of be a general without an army? And, and I, I've gotten asked that a couple yeah. of times. Or maybe not even a general anymore. I know what that's it. like. <laughs> um, uh, and, and all I can say is that the team at, at the DCCC in the 2018 cycle was just. I guess you're still in the job for a little, or you're in transition. So, so the, yeah. Yes, I mean, we're in transition. So you still, you still have your, your regalia. Uh, I still have a base I can go back to. How's that? Um, but, but just the team was just outstanding and getting used to life without that, without seeing those people every day, uh, you know. It's it's that's gonna take it's a, a loss. Yeah, yeah, it really it is. is. It really is. There is a little bit of mourning that is going on with. Well, it's not I, seeing some of these. Here's hoping today. that you find the next army, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and appreciate your work this cycle oh, and, and turning things over. Uh, anything else you want to say? No, I'm just so honored to be here, and thank you for thinking of me, and and happy to come back anytime. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks. Bye. That was Dan Senna outgoing executive director of the DCCC. Dan is at DCCC.org. I'm grateful to Dan and his team at the DCCC for their role in helping take back the U.S. House for Democrats, and I look forward to seeing where Dan takes his talents next. 
This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.